Welcome to the No Water Methodist Church Podcast, where we hope to encourage you in your spiritual journey so that you may be a blessing to your local church and to the world. Hey there, friends. We're about to listen to the uh, message from October 17th, 2021. We continue to pick up in the lectionary with Job where he's suffering and he finally gets a chance to bring his case to God and God answers him. And we talk about what that's like and what God's sovereignty is, is like and whether or not it's okay to question God or shake our fist at God. Uh, we go through the psalm which talks about the natural order. We go to Hebrews, which talks about uh, the importance of Christians growing up and eating solid food and not staying on milk, and we talk about the implications of that and what that means for our lives. And then finally, we end with Jesus' words about how to prepare for greatness in the kingdom. And um, so all of that aimed at Christian humility and God's greatness. So I hope that as you spend time meditating on these things with me and with the people here at our church that, um, that you just get a greater appreciation for God's power, God's love, uh, for, uh, for the role that Jesus plays in your salvation. Uh, just so often Christians, people of all stripes, forget that we really can't save ourselves, and it really takes uh, God reaching in and supernaturally doing something to make us worthy of His kingdom. So I pray that God gives you a thankful and receptive heart as you listen to this. God bless you as you do so. So our first reading is from Job chapter 38, verses 1 through 41. It's on 832 in your pew Bibles. Listen to the word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind the doors when it burst from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. When I, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? And where does darkness reside? 
Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. To whom is God speaking right now? Job, I'm trying to convey, he's being sarcastic here. He's, he's not saying, oh, I know you know these. He's not deferring to Job. He's mocking Job. He's saying, you weren't around for any of this, you chump. Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate, desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost of the heavens when the waters become hard as stone, when the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons or lead out Leo with its cubs, the bear with its cubs? Leo is a bear, I guess, in astrology. I don't know astrology. Verse 33, do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the rooster understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? This is the word of the Lord. So, what Job had in mind, surely, is what we have in mind as well whenever we feel like God's given us a bad hand. I don't deserve to suffer like this. God should have done things different. What we like to imagine is we can appear before God's judgment seat and make our appeal. And he might not make excuses, but he might say, well, Jeffrey, here's why I did this. Here's what was going on. Here's what you need to understand. Here's what was going on behind the scenes. We like to imagine that God will explain himself to us and that one day we'll go, I get it, God, you were right all along. Oh, God, I, I'm sorry I ever doubted you. Except we won't be sorry because we felt entitled to doubt because we didn't know everything. This is how most people are. Most people feel like in order to accept something, we need to understand it, okay? And that's how we are, you know, and in some senses, that's really good. And some, you know, I'm one of these that feels like a lot of our modern day authorities have really dropped the ball and betrayed us and they don't know as much as they think that they know and it's for us to question and to ask questions and they shouldn't be threatened by that. But I don't think that's how it works with God. Can God be questioned? One of the things that I've heard say, said about him is that God's ways are inscrutable. It's a fancy way of saying he can't be questioned. When Job questions God, God's answer to that is not what Job wants, where he's saying, Job, here's what went on behind the scenes and why we made this decision for you, and here's what I have in store for you in the future. He doesn't do that. He says, 
you don't know what you're talking about. Here, I, I got to go back. Sorry. You don't know what you're talking about. Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? He's saying your words are stupid. Your words are without knowledge. Then he says, brace yourself like a man. Another way of saying that is gird up your loins. Okay. Back in the day, men didn't have undies, except for the high priest. He was special for many reasons, one of which was he had undies. But they would wear these tunics that would cover their parts. But whenever it came time, if somebody picked a fight with you in public or if you didn't have uh, a war kilter uh, skirt to wear, you would just fight in your tunic, but you didn't want your stuff to be all loose, so you would gird up your loins. You would wrap your tunic around, and then you'd hold it up in the middle, and you'd hold a sword with that, and you'd hold your tunic right here, and that's girding up your loins right there. And God is saying, get ready, because I'm coming at you. Gird up your loins, all right? We're going to have the man dance here. We're going to do the man dance, and then he does the man dance, and he just trounces him. Y'all know what I'm saying, man dance? That's, that's when two guys fight. Did you know that, bud? <laughs> Bud's like, I'm the one saying that. Let's go. <laughs> so God is challenging him, and then he goes down the list of, uh, remind me, Job, where were you when I did all this amazing stuff that you could never do? Where were you whenever I created the world, whenever I put boundaries on it, whenever the angels were singing because of how great I was and everything great that I was doing? Remind me, where were you? You were really old. You were around back then, weren't you? And the answer is no. Job is just a mortal like us. This doesn't end up going, the next two chapters don't go any different than this. God continues to go down the line of all the amazing, miraculous things he's done throughout history so that eventually Job says, I am ashamed, I repent, I am sorry, I have nothing left to say. And then once he gets to that point, then God shows his favor on him. God forgives him. He actually has him pray over his friends for forgiveness. But it's only once Job gets to that place of absolute submission that he finds that peace in suffering. Now, what, what sermon is there in that that is satisfying? The answer is there is not a satisfying sermon that comes out of this. I grew out of a tradition where it was okay to question God. It was okay to shake my face, uh, fist at him every now and again, so I don't like how you're doing things, God. And it was okay to question whether or not God was in control of history or whether or not God was actually good. And I've since learned by reading my Bible that that is not a good way to be. It is not good to question God's goodness. It is not good to question whether or not he's just or in control. And it's not good to expect that God will explain himself to me. If anybody has ever had children, sometimes you tell your child to do something that they don't want to do, right? You don't have perfectly compliant kids. They, you tell them to do things they don't want to do, right? If you're, a pa if you're a parent who's worth their salt, you tell your kids to do things they don't want to do, okay? And when you do, sometimes a child will say this awful word, why? I hate that word so much because what they're saying is explain yourself to me. And is it a father's job to explain himself to a child? Absolutely not. Because hypothetically, I take the time, Susanna, here's why I've told you to do this thing that you really don't want to do. Is my daughter then going to say, oh, father, I understand now. I am so happy to do that for you. Is that what a child does? No, they go, well, I think I can do this other thing, and it'll be just fine too. Oh, I don't think I need to do that. You know, they, there's always something else. There's no point explaining yourself to a child. Is there any point in God explaining himself to us? 
I really don't think so. Because we're like children as well. Well, God, I really don't think I need to suffer in order to learn this lesson. How many of us would say that, you know? Oh, God, I really, I think there's a better way you could do this. Let's just sit down and let's have a powwow. God, we're going to figure things out together. No, this is not a group decision. God is sovereign. He decides. We trust. We obey. Can anyone say amen to that? So that is, uh, I find these psalms more interesting. The older I get, I don't know why. As a young man, I didn't really understand how otherworldly this psalm is because it's hard to figure out, and I know I'm not the only one who struggles with this. There are a lot of different worldviews competing for people to believe that they're true. Okay, and we're not talking about just religions. We're talking about ideologies. We're talking about political parties. There are lots of different lenses through which you can see the world that are not the same as others. The one that I inherited was not from the Bible. It was from modern enlightenment, modernist, mechanical reason, science. And as I looked around the world, I didn't see a world that God had created or was sustaining and redeeming. I saw a world that just came about and had natural forces at play that naturally sustained it all and no God was needed in order to maintain the created order. That's what I saw. That is my root programming. That's what I inherited from the educational system. That's what I inherited in the church, to be honest with you. It was a very modern church that looked at a lot of this language that we just encountered like, oh, that's very nice. Of course, that's what ancient people believed. But of course, we know now that if there is a God who created, he's now sitting back and everything just runs like a machine. He's like a clockmaker who made this master clock and it's now just running perfectly and there's no need for intervention. The biblical story you get is, yes, there seem to be ways that things are usually done, but they only happen because God ordains that they should and is constantly maintaining them. Here it said, uh, the lions only get their food, animals only get their food because God gives it to them. Well, I've watched National Geographic. It seems to me that lions work pretty hard for their food, don't you think? And yet the biblical story is nobody eats unless God gives them food. Nothing grows unless God gives the growth. These four wonderful children that God has given me, none of them would be, ha if it was just me and Sarah Beth, we wouldn't be able to make anything on our own. It's God who creates. It's God who grows and sustains. It's God who saves. And we might look with our eyes and not be able to say, see God doing it and say, well, then God isn't necessary. The favorite metaphor I have for that is a drunk person who loses their keys somewhere walking on the street, but they're only searching for it under the one street lamp that's working. And when the police officer comes and says, why aren't you looking down any other parts of the street? He says, this is the only part I can see. Well, just because it's the only part you can see doesn't mean that's the only part there is. What the Bible speaks to is the stuff we can't see. It lies behind the veil. What the Bible tells us is this created order is not the natural byproduct of some clockmaker. It is connected vitally to a God who is sustaining it at any, every moment. And if God were to not sustain it at any given moment, this would all fall apart. This would all fall apart. If God were not willing me to stay alive right now, my heart would stop beating and I would die right here. 
It is only because God has ordained that I should live and he is actively keeping me alive that I breathe another breath. And it's the same case for you and everybody you love and everybody you hate and all the organisms of this world, even the ones we don't see, because God sees. And he's the one who keeps us alive. He's the one who sustains. You see how different this worldview is than the scientific worldview? And that's not to say science is wrong or I dislike science. I think it's so interesting. But I'm trying to draw attention to the fact that the Bible gives us something more beautiful than anything you're encountering in a textbook throughout your education. And it gives us something more true and real. So I want you to see it, and then I want you to believe it. Easy? Let's do it. All right, let's move Uh, along. Let's go to our third reading, Hebrews chapter 5. As we're hearing this read, uh, this is just the whole chapter We're not going to talk about the first part a bit. It's going to talk about priesthood, how Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, we've read this before. I've explained it before. It's been a while. The primary function of a priest, whether you're talking about a Jewish priest or a Catholic priest or an Orthodox priest, a priest is an intercessor between sinners and God. They take the sinners as they come in. They officiate a sacrifice with the atoning blood to apply to their sins and then help them be atoned with God. That's what a priest does. So that's why in uh, Revelation, we, all Christians, are called a priesthood of all believers. We are now the intercessors between a sinful world and a righteous and holy God. So we are all priests. But Jesus is the head high priest. And the high priest was the one who would go into the Holy of Holies and achieve a, uh, a forgiveness, really, for the world. He was, he was the biggest, greatest guy in the whole temple religion. And Jesus is even bigger than the one they had. The Melchizedek thing, there's a story in Genesis where Abraham put his own army together and went to save his uh, nephew Lot, as well as a lot of people from Salem, not from Salem, from Sodom. Then the king of Salem, Melchizedek, which means my king of righteousness, he comes out of nowhere and Abraham offers uh, gifts to him, a tithe to the Lord, because it says he is a priest of the God Most High, El Elyon. Melchizedek is a priest of the God Most High, and then Abram gives him gifts, and then Melchizedek blesses Abram. And what the author of Hebrews says is the order of Melchizedek is a direct line to God in the way that the order of Abraham and the Levites established uh, by Moses at Mount Sinai later. That one's okay, but that's not the one Jesus is. Jesus was not a Levite. Jesus was not of a priestly family, but he's a high priest of the order of Melchizedek going back to Genesis, going back before Moses and Aaron. So that's important to understand, but not for today's purposes. I just, we find things in our readings that we're like, what, that's weird, what is that? You need to understand that, and then we'll, we're actually going to talk about the latter half of the reading, which talks about milk and eating solid food, okay? So I'd welcome that reader to come forward. Good morning. Our third reading is from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 14 which begins on page 1865 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself 
the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, you are my son, today I have become your father. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the part we're going to talk about more briefly than I would like is this part dealing with milk and solid food. He kind of reams them out, and I'm going to lead into the, the intro to this again. He's talking about the priesthood of Melchizedek and all this, and he says, we have much to say to, this about, to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. This is, as I've um, started having conversations as an adult with people that are difficult to have conversations with, one of the things I've noticed is actually helpful to say if you've ever talked to somebody and you realize it's not going well, you're not having an actual exchange, I've learned it's really helpful to, to, to <laughs> it's helpful for me to say, you're not listening. It immediately puts them on the defensive and then they have to show I'm listening, you know, and to show that you're listening, a great thing to do is to be able to say back to somebody what they've said to you in a way that they say, yeah, that's what I just said. If you can't do that in the midst of an argument, you need to work harder at understanding other people. Because if you can't understand people in an argument, are you sure you really understand them when you're just getting along? How many people have relationships with one another and they feel like they understand one another and then one, of, one day they wake up and they're like, who are you? I don't know you. And it's not just marriages, but that happens all the time in marriage. And it's because we don't do that hard work of communication. We don't do that hard work of learning and growing and integrating those things that we learn when you first become a Christian, of course you're a baby. Of course you're a baby Christian. What else could you be? You can't make yourself grow up, grow old. But the question is, as you continue to walk in faith, are you maturing? Are you getting smarter? Are you developing? Or are you staying in an infantile state? There are a lot of people who claim to follow Jesus, but they're not growing. They're not learning their Bibles any better. They're not growing in Christian disciplines and discipleship. They're not growing in relationship with their brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not growing in their daily observance of holiness in their household. They come to worship. They sit in the pew. They listen to the pompous preacher preach. Then they go home, and they don't do anything different. Week after week, month after month, year after year, 
And when it comes time to die, they're not ready because they're still just a baby. And how are we to feel about that? I remember Time Magazine had an article when I was in seminary talking about these mothers who breastfeed their children way too late. Had a picture of like a nine-year-old boy standing and sucking at his mother's teat. I probably shouldn't say that in a human context. Uh, He was suckling at her breast, a nine-year-old boy. I just felt so sorry and ashamed for this boy put in front of the nation as this infantile creature. And yet, how many Christians are exactly like this? Way too old to be drinking milk, and yet just don't want to eat that meat. Just don't want to do the hard things in faith. Just don't want to learn. These are the type of people that say, give me Jesus, I don't need doctrine. It's about a relationship, not a religion. These are all things people say that they do, so they don't have to feel like they have to think, use their brain, use their heart, use discernment. But the whole point here is, in verse 14, solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You mean to tell me if I stay on milk all my life, I won't be able to distinguish good from evil? Yes. You will not be mature, you will not be developed, you will not be equipped for the time of trial. Sarah Beth follows this. Uh, what's the organization you follow on dietary stuff around the world? The, it's named after the guy. The Weston A. Price Foundation. This guy went around the world. He looked at the ethnic natural cuisines of all these people groups several decades ago before we ruined everything. And what he discovered is every single ethnic group, well, first off, they were much healthier than we are because we've been eating trash in the West for like 70 years. But all these ethnic groups that are healthier than us and eating healthier food, they have to have meat in their diet. Humans have to have meat. Without it, we don't have necessary proteins and amino acids for keeping our bodies together. You have, you're smiling at me because I wasn't eating enough meat at one point, and you came by my house and you said, eat this beef. I just now remembered that. I was like, why is she smiling at me? Yes, it's important to eat meat. It really is. And in a spiritual sense, if you are not getting off the, the milk, if you're not growing up, if you're not eating the harder stuff, if you're not reading your Bible, if you're not learning to pray, if you're not learning to practice self-denial, then you are going to be an infant and you are not going to be ready for the times ahead. And it's sad and it's shameful and you need to grow up. That's one of the mean things to say when you're fighting somebody. A kind of helpful thing is you're not listening. But a thing where like the conversation ends is you need to grow up, man. And very few people can hear that. But that's what the scriptures say is, brothers and sisters, we need to grow up. We want to believe that we can like stay under this age of accountability if we just stay infants that God won't judge us, and that is not the deal. He is going to judge everybody, whether or not we're disciplined or mature. The question is, are we going to use our time heal well, or are we going to dilly-dally until it's too late? So you've heard where I'm at on that. Let me encourage you, don't wait till it's too late. Grow up, mature. Oh, I just so happen to be leading a Bible study on Thursdays at 6.30. I would love to have you join me. Come by this Thursday at 6.30. See, our church is doing the work of feeding you some meat. Come eat some meat, folks. Sarah Beth, who's reading the gospel reading? Is it me or somebody else? Okay, great. No intro needed here. We're picking up where we left off in the gospel last week. Listen one more time for the word of God. Thank you, David. Good morning. morning. Our gospel reading is from the gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 45 which you can find on page 1575 in your pew Bibles. Listen again to the word of God. 
They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later he will die. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dave. So this last reading, I think we can tie it up in a pretty bow. Our first reading was Job. The moral of the story being it's not our job to question, but to learn to submit and obey and accept what God gives us, knowing that it's enough more than. With the psalm, we deal with God's sovereignty and how he's maintaining everything. Part of Hebrews that I didn't focus on too much was talking about how Jesus practiced obedience to the Father, and because of that practicing obedience, he was made high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So there's a directionality of all this that leads us to where do we want to be? Do we want to be of good stature in the kingdom? Do we want to be close to Christ in the kingdom? Do we want to have a good status in the kingdom, or do we want to be excluded from the kingdom? Do we want to be alien to the kingdom in its ways? And I think most of us, if we're being honest, I, uh, we would like to be close to Jesus. We would like to be of, of high stature in the kingdom. Whenever James and John come to Jesus and they say, we want the two best places in heaven right next to you, he doesn't shame them and go, how dare you want good things for yourself? He doesn't do that. He says, well, are you able to drink out of the cup? I'm going to drink and have the baptism I'm baptized with. And they say, yeah, we think so. And he says, actually, you can. But I still can't give you the seats because they've been reserved for somebody. But here's the thing. He says, if you do want to be of high status, then you must serve and be a slave to everybody. And that's counterintuitive because any culture you're talking about on earth, you have high status and low status people. The high status people get served. The low low status people are the servers, right? What Jesus says, if you want a good place in the kingdom, your life is spent now not being served, 
but serving others. And what do you know? Jesus said, he said, the son of man, he's talking about himself in the third person, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for all. That's what he said. He said, that's the way that you and I should live. Uh, who's exempted from this? Are there, is there anybody exempted from living like Jesus lived? No, that's a trick question. Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? Nope, there's a cross for everyone, a cross for you and me, all right? That's the deal. When we want to be part of the royal priesthood of all believers, when we want to be welcome in God's heavenly places and his heavenly temple, then there's a way of life for me and you, and it's marked with humility, submission, and service to God and others. I'm inclined to think I made that so simple I don't need to talk anymore. What do you think? Should I preach 10 more minutes or can we leave it there? I think we can just leave it there. There's a simple way of life to which we're called. The scriptures are really rather uniform and clear. So let me encourage you, let's just do it together.